Well, good morning, ladies. Thank you for being here. Thank you for letting me be here. Um, before we start, let me go ahead and pray again, um, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this beautiful morning you've given us. Lord, thank you for the ladies that are here. Lord, I just pray that you will take this lesson, that you will use it in all of our lives. Lord, I pray that we will not just be hearers of your word, but that we will do what it says. Lord, help us to honor you, help us to love you, help us to obey your commandments. Father, just thank you for your grace. Thank you for sending Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, before we start, I just want to say, I don't have this figured out. The last time I came here and taught it, I got into an argument with my husband the night before. I am, and I told him, I said, I am never teaching this lesson again, because I normally end up being your living guinea pig. Praise God. It wasn't me. I didn't have that this time. So, I, yeah, so I'm, I'm thankful. So I'm back. Um, I do want to make a disclaimer. I always like to give credit where credit is due um, so that I am not accused of being a plagiarist. And I just want to recommend, if you don't have this book, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, it's, it's worth getting. I think we have it on the book table. It is, it's just really helpful for conflict resolution. So I can highly recommend that. His website, and I have that listed on the last page of your notes. And also, um, this is listed on your notes, Communication and Conflict Resolution. This is by Stuart Scott. Much smaller book, but very good. So I want to recommend both of those. And as we start, I, I want you to think about is peacemaking, is this lesson important? I would say yes. We live in a world full of conflict. And like I said, last time I did this, I was in conflict and came and felt like I can't even teach this. Um, our world, you know, with what's going on with ISIS or ISIL, I mean, there's conflict over what you call the bad guys, okay? I, I don't know, the bad guys. It's bad. I mean, it, it's all around us. But it didn't just start like a year ago or five years ago. It started back at the fall. And so we're going to, like what Lori described last time, only I feel like we're on a rocket jet, a rocket ship, I guess, going over this. On your handout, there are a ton of references. I don't know if you're going to be able to flip to all of them. I, I would encourage you, make it homework and go back and go through them. Um, so it's kind of up to you if you want to try and turn. But it starts at Genesis 3. We see the fall. That's our first example of conflict. We see Adam and Eve's fellowship with God is broken. We see blame shifting. Adam actually, which, have you ever done this, had the nerve to blame God? But God, 
he says, it's the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the woman blame shifts and says, it's the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. Have you ever done that? I know I have. And I just thankfully in God's word, right at Genesis 3.15, we see the first announcement of the gospel. We see he will crush your head. That's Jesus. Jesus will crush the head of Satan. And you, speaking of Satan, will strike his heel. Satan did not strike a death blow against Jesus. It's the other way around. So from there, we see Adam and Eve. They're out of the garden. Then we see the first murder. Two brothers, Cain and Abel. It just it goes on and on and on. In Genesis 6, 5, we see the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And I'm sure as you ladies are going through your reading plans, you see conflict. You see con conflict with nations, conflicts with people. It's all through scripture. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. When we go to the New Testament, in Mark 2, 9 through 18, that's where the wise men go and visit baby Jesus. And what happened? Herod was furious. Furious is one of those conflict words. You know, if you tell your children, I'm furious, they know you're angry. And at that moment, Herod gave the orders to kill all the boys under two years old in Bethlehem. That's conflict. John 3, 25 through 36, that passage, there's a, a discussion, which I think discussion is, you know, sometimes have you ever said this? Okay, we're going to have a discussion is that code for argument or fight? Um, and that was John's disciples. They, were, they had that with the Jew about purification. There was an argument. And one passage that I think just shows what we're like, it's an example of how quickly things can change, is Luke 4, and it's um, verses 16 through 30. And this is Jesus. He's come to Nazareth where he was brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up and read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he goes on. And then he's, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In verse 22, it says, All were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? They liked him. They thought, Wow, he's a good guy. And then, if you keep going, it says, he goes on and he says, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath 
in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Listen to how quickly things have changed. Verse 28, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up, drove him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So in a matter of six verses, they go from who is this to get him out of here. Matthew Henry, when he commented on this, he said, what they were angry about was that he intimated some kindness God had in reserve for the Gentiles, which the Jews could by no means bear the thought of. They didn't like the fact that the Jews weren't going to be killed. It was going to be the Syrians, Naaman the Syrians. That they were enraged. How quickly can we be like that? Where we hear something and we're agreeing and agreeing and the next thing we're filled with rage. And then another passage that I kind of feel like I can relate to. Well, I'll explain in a minute. Mark 9, 33 through 35. They, and this is the apostles. No, I am not an apostle, okay? But, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Okay, have you ever gotten in that discussion if you have? And this is the one I always think of when I read this passage. I have two brothers. Have you ever had that discussion if you have siblings? Mom likes you best. I always think of that. And still, at 57 years old, my brothers and I, mom likes you best. And we all know which one she likes best. So we see, even among the apostles, these guys were with Jesus, and they're arguing about that. They're arguing about those kinds of things. Who's the greatest? Who's the best? And I know you've had your lesson on Mary and Martha. That was another example of conflict. And then in Acts 15, we see trouble between Paul and Barnabas. These guys had been serving the Lord together, and now psh, over John Mark, Paul goes one way, and Barnabas and John Mark go the other. We see problems in the church at Corinth. We see Paul encouraging the Ephesian church to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. He needed to encourage that because they were having difficulties. And we see Paul over and over in his letters teaching about unity. And is it different today? Like I mentioned earlier, no, we've got ISIS and ISIL, we've got problems in our homes, problems in workplaces, neighborhoods, cities, states, nations, the world. These conflicts are a result of the fall. We shouldn't be surprised. It's everywhere. And it's all the way from something as evil as defriending somebody from Facebook to murder. That whole defriending thing. I don't understand Facebook, so I don't get that. 
But I can tell you this, the church is not immune. We have problems within the church. And there's one that's in Philippians. It's two ladies, Eudia and Syntyche. And I always think on this passage, what was that like? As a woman, I do feel like I can relate. I can see we're in this house church, and I'm sitting here, and Susie Q's sitting over there, and we're in a conflict, and here comes the letter. What do you think that would have felt like? I mean, you read the book of Philippians. You, if you read the whole book in one sitting, you realize it's just kind of going along, and then all of a sudden, it's, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Eudia, and I urge Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Can you imagine if you got a letter? I urge Anne and I urge Susie Q to get along in the Lord. It's like, can you, I, I just, I, I, where, where's a corner dark enough to, to crawl into? Paul had to plead with them to get along. And then he goes on further. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared, in, shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The pastor. He had to ask the pastor for help. Can you, I can't, Anne and Susie, can you, by the way, Scott, would you mind helping them get along? But yeah, there's conflict. It happens. So we need to know how to biblically respond to conflict. And becoming a Christian doesn't mean that conflict disappears. It does mean that our relationship with the Lord changes. We're no longer under God's wrath. And we can be peacemakers. God has given us new abilities to live in a way that honors the Lord. And ladies, another reason this is important, there are a bucket load of commands in the New Testament commanding believers to live at peace. Romans 12, 18 is kind of one of those overarching things. Get this in your head. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Those are our marching orders. Be at peace with all men, so far as it depends on you. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it talks about God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of, do you want to know what your ministry is? It's a ministry of reconciliation. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. And it goes on to say, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So as we're reconciled to God, we're also to be reconciled to one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God and love, God of love and peace will be with you. Ephesians 4, 1 talks about the unity of the Spirit. We have a unity and a bond of peace because we're believers in Christ. That's what our unity is around. 
2 Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 1 Timothy 3.8, to sum up all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. If you go on in, in that passage, Peter is quoting Psalm 34, and in verse 11 it says, he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. We're to pursue peace. And another overarching principle that you will hear me often say is Matthew 22, 30, 34 through 40. And that's the Pharisees talking to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And it boils down to love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. So in order for us to live in peace and unity, be like-minded, we do need the gospel. And I want to encourage you to go back to um, our church's biblical conviction number five on the doctrine of sanctification. I know some of the small groups have gone through them and I think that's a great idea, but you can go to the website and look at them because the gospel, I'm gonna, today's lesson has a lot of commands, a lot of this is what you need to do. But if I'm gonna tell you this is what you need to do, I wanna remind you, this is who you are because of who you are, because of being a believer, we're called to do this, and we can do this. And so I'm going to read just a little bit of the, the gospel from our um, doctrine of sanctification. Remember, sanctification is being made like Christ. So as we're in this journey to heaven, our sanctification, we need the gospel, and you need the gospel just as much the very first day you became a believer as the day you die. You need the gospel. So I just want to remind you the gospel is not merely important at the point of conversion. The power and the promises of the gospel are essential for living the Christian life every day. And it's been said to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And I just want to encourage you to do that. And especially as we're looking at a lesson that has, like I said, a lot of commands. I'm telling you, live at peace. But I want you to remember, you can live at peace because of what Christ has done. Don't forget that. Because otherwise, all I've done, if all I do is come here and tell you, here's what you've got to do, and I don't tell you the rest, I stand the risk of making you a better Pharisee. I don't want to do that. So just remember the promises. Remember what Christ has done. And also from our doctrinal statement, it says, as the believer lives the Christian life, he must never graduate from the gospel. The gracious promises and the transforming power of God for us in the gospel are needful every day. The promises of God for us in the gospel are immeasurably more powerful for sanctification than our promises to him. As we fight sin, 
we must find ourselves at the cross of Jesus Christ and be reminded of the objective grace realities of our new position in Christ. As we seek to obey God and be conformed to the image of Jesus, we must anchor all of our efforts in the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. As you maybe see something as we continue on through the lesson that you need to work on to be a peacemaker, go back to the cross, remember what Christ has done. So I want to give some preventative measures, kind of like, okay, I, and we're going to get to, okay, what do you do when you're in the conflict? Because you can be, do all the preventative stuff. You can get the flu shot and still get the flu. You can do these preventative things and still end up sinning against somebody or having somebody sin against you, getting in a conflict. But again, here's just a few preventative things. And again, Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And I just want you to think a little bit about yourself. What kind of woman are you? Are you the kind of woman who stirs up trouble? Or are you the kind that diffuses situations? Are you the kind of woman that throws gasoline on that fire? Or do you put a wet blanket over that fire that's coming at you? I'm the gasoline on the fire gal, okay? So I'll, I'll just, I recognize that, I admit it. I have to work really hard to put the blanket on. So these are just as much for me as they are for you. I'm, again, not coming as somebody that's got this all figured out. Um, and I want you to know I'm not talking about being a doormat. I'm not talking about a clam who just says nothing or just agreeing with something that you don't agree with to prevent, to prevent conflict. But do you do what scripture says? And Proverbs is a book full of, of counsel to us. They're not promises, but they're counsel. They're, they're sayings that typically are true, okay? And I think as we read them, you'll see this. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. And the way I always remember it is when, when words are many, sin abounds. I've gotten myself in more trouble because I didn't just keep my mouth shut. Proverbs 12, 18, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, 1, and I think we all know this, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 18, 2, the tongue has the power of life and death. We can give life with our words, or we can give Another one that I've gotten in trouble with, Proverbs 18, 13. He who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. You need to listen. Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first 
seems right until the other comes and examines him. Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And this, this one I've seen in living color. Proverbs 26, 17 through 23. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Think about that. A dog's walking by, you grab it by the ears. That's what it's like getting involved in a quarrel that's not your own. Don't be a busybody. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Lying and deceit, another sin of the tongue, and then saying, ah, I was only joking. You're a madman if you do that. You're a mad woman. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, no gossip, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. This passage in, in Proverbs is, is so vivid of what our sin by our tongue is like. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body, like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Those are all cautions from God's word. And again, I want to remind you, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, is love God, love your neighbor. Romans 14, 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's what we're to pursue. Another guard for our mouths. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to my needs, no, according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That's what we're called to do. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And James 4 says, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And here's the thing in that passage. It says you desire. It doesn't say your evil desires. You can be desiring a really good thing and end up in a quarrel. Be careful. And this one you need to add to that list on your handout. 
And it's a passage that I refer women to a ton. It's a whole book. It's First Peter. Add that to your handout. If you are struggling um, with being sinned against, if you're in a relationship where, where there's just a lot of conflict and sin, First Peter was written to encourage suffering believers in Asia Minor to stand firm for Christ in the midst of persecution. And it was written during the persecution of Christian under Nero's reign. And Nero was an evil, evil man that used Christians as torches. I mean, it was awful. The intent of that letter was to strengthen believers in the midst of suffering and persecution they were facing. And I believe that this message from Peter continues to speak to us today as modern believers. It reminds us of our heavenly hope and our eternal inheritance in the midst of suffering. So if you're in that place or you are with a friend that's, that's suffering, um, being persecuted, it may be being persecuted for her faith, it may be being persecuted by family members, by a husband. It is, there is comfort there. So I, I would just definitely recommend that, that you remind, you know, remind yourself that's a good place to send yourself or someone. So we can do all those things, we can, you know, be preventative and a gentle answer turn away wrath and we can still end up in conflict so how do we respond and the definition of peacemaking is responding to conflict biblically so how do we respond to conflict biblically and I believe there's different aspects of peacemaking there's when I'm the offender when I have sinned, and then there's when I have been offended, I have been sinned against. So we're going to look at first, what do I do when it's my sin? When I'm the offender, what do I do? <clears throat> so what do I do when I've sinned against somebody and I need to seek forgiveness? And I want to just, a little side note, this is from Jay Adams, and he says to, he helps us deal with what's called heart sins, and these are the ones that don't grow into full-blown sin against another. They're sins like lust or envy or covetousness. These sins need to be confessed to God. So if I'm coveting something that belongs to you, and it's just in my mind, and I don't act on it, I need to go to God, and I need to confess my sin to him. The biblical pattern is, confess your sins to as wide of an audience that you have sinned against. So if I'm thinking sinful thoughts about someone, but it doesn't grow into a full-blown sin, I confess it to God. If on the other hand, I say something unkind to that person or about that person, then I need to confess my sin to God, and then I need to go seek forgiveness from that person. And I also want to remind you the difference between a mistake and sin. If you make a mistake, 
you say you're sorry. If you sin, you seek forgiveness. That doesn't typically happen. I found this little article. This was from, I think, ABC News. And I don't know if any of you all watch the news, but Brian Williams, the newscaster, he joins the list of memorable on-air apologies. And these are some of the favorites. Um, him, Tiger Woods, Elizabeth Hasselbeck, Melissa Harris-Perry, Ray Rice, Rachel Smalley, Mark McGuire, and Fox News Channel. They had to seek forgiveness. Well, what they did was they made apologies. And I just want to help you understand the difference. And I had you look up those words in your homework for preparing the difference between an apology and sorry and forgive, forgiveness. I think those are the three words we had. So I'm sorry. What that does is expresses a feeling. If all I do, if I sin against you and I come and I say, I'm sorry, what are you left with? What an apology is, is when I say I want to apologize, it's a formal justification. It's a defense. It's an excuse. It's me saying, well, I did it, but it's really your fault. And I'm going to read Brian Williams. What he did is he made up a story. I mean, he was sort of there, but he embellished. He said he was on the helicopter that got shot down. Well, he was the plane behind it. It still sounds pretty grim, but he lied about it. And so he said, I want to apologize. Williams said, looking into the camera during his broadcast, I made a mistake in recalling the events of 12 years ago. So it's really not my fault because it happened 12 years ago. And then he says, I said I was traveling in an aircraft that was hit by RPG fire. I was instead in a following aircraft. This was a bungled attempt by me to thank one special veteran and by extension our brave military men and women. I hope they know they have my greatest respect and also now my apology. So in other words, what they have is the excuse why he lied. What can I say? You know, and I, I, I looked through all of, all of those. I kind of watched them because they had the actual footage of it. And it was really interesting just watching them just kind of. Elizabeth Hasselbeck, and I believe she's a believer, she did the best job. She, but she still ended up just saying, I'm really sorry. And I'm like, okay. She did call the gal. So she said something she shouldn't have said. And anyways, it's really easy to get trapped in that of just coming and saying I'm sorry. So remember, saying I'm sorry just expresses a feeling. An apology is a formal defense. And then the other way we can do it is adding some favorite words, if, but, perhaps, maybe. Please forgive me if I hurt you because you were really being ugly to me. Please forgive me if I hurt you because you were being unreasonable. That is not seeking forgiveness. Okay? 
So, how do we confess our sin? And I want to go back real quick because I don't think I clarified. There is a difference between sinning against somebody and making a mistake. And I've used this analogy before, but I'll use it again. If I see Lori's purse and I walk over and I take it for mine, I've just stolen it, okay? Now I need to go and say, Lori, will you please forgive me? I stole your purse and I'm going to make restitution. Here it is. And I'll take you out for coffee. Now if, on the other hand, and I think I actually recently did this, um, I walk over, I pick up Lori's purse and I walk out the door and I get out to my car and I go, this is not my purse. I'm going to go back to Lori and I'm going to say, Lori, I am so sorry. I picked up your purse instead of my purse. I'm sorry. Here it is. I don't need to seek forgiveness for a mistake like that. That's truly a mistake. There's a difference between a mistake and sin. Okay? Sometimes our mistakes, we may, I mean, if I'm continually picking up Lori's purse and I'm just not being careful and I'm being, you know, Yes, thank you. But it may be that I'm being careless, and I may need to say, you know, Lori, I did it again. I am a careless woman. Will you please forgive me? Do you see the difference? Does that? Okay. If not, come and see me, and we'll, we can talk more about it. Um, but how do we confess sin? Well, first of all, we do it immediately. Matthew 5.23 says... Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. If you recognize that you have sinned against somebody, you need to go as soon as you can. And what does confess mean? It means to say the same thing. It's to agree with God. So we need to confess first our sin to God. Because more than sinning against another person, we have sinned against a holy God. And praise the Lord, 1 John 1, 9 is in there. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the first place, is confess your sin to God. Repent. You need to change. You need to turn from your sin, and then you need to go, and you need to say, will you please forgive me? And if you're afraid, because sometimes it is scary to seek forgiveness, ask God for his grace to help you. He will do that. Our God is a good God. And remember, how do we respond to conflict biblically? Now as the causer of conflict by my sin, what do I do? And this comes from peacemakers, the seven A's of confession. Address everyone involved. Again, like what we talked about a little bit earlier, all of those that you have affected. That's why Brian Williams, in the fact that it was a public thing, he publicly lied to everybody, repeating this story. He didn't just sin against 
the crew of the helicopters. It was everybody. He lied to the world about where he was. So it was appropriate that he made that public announcement. Avoid if, but, and maybe, like what we talked about earlier, don't try to excuse your wrongs. You know, I sinned against you, but I had a really bad headache. Admit specifically both your attitudes and actions. Lori, will you please forgive me for stealing your purse? I coveted it. I wanted it. I wanted it for mine. I wanted it for me. And so I stole your purse. Please forgive me. You, you can express your feelings. And Lori, I'm sorry that made you late for your appointment because I had your keys and all your stuff. You can say you're sorry for what you did because you are expressing a feeling. And that's acknowledging the hurt. Express sorrow for hurting the person. Accept the consequences. Lori, I understand you've called the police. I don't blame you. <laughs> and now I'll be in jail, and when I get out, I will work to, to pay you back, okay? And alter your behavior. I will never steal your purse again. Okay, change your attitudes, change your actions. Laura, I'm going to try really hard not to covet your purse. And then, finally, ask for forgiveness. Lori, will you please forgive me? And Lori's going to say yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Lori's going to say, and we'll, we'll learn about that. What's your responsibility when somebody comes and seeks your forgiveness? And remember, the gospel. You can change. We can change. Now, the stealing the purse thing, I'm pretty confident that's not happening in this room. But maybe angry words, harsh attitudes, harsh tones, you know. Um, th those things. Those are sin we need to confess. So confession is saying to another, you are right, I did wrong you, I did sin against you. It's admitting what has been charged as true. And in the final analysis, true confession is agreement with another that is in agreement with God's word. And it's important when you're seeking forgiveness, when, when you're asking for forgiveness, to stick entirely to your own sin. It's easy to blame shift. You know, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have gotten angry at you if you weren't two hours late. Well, just because somebody's two hours late doesn't give me permission to sin. So what happens, we first dealt with, okay, I have sinned, I recognize I've sinned. Now what do we do if someone comes to you, someone comes to me and tells me that I've sinned against them, and I agree. If, if they come, you know, if my husband comes to me and says, you know, honey, when you did, responded that way, um, I think that was sin. How do I respond to that biblically? Well, I want to be approachable. That's really important in our everyday relationships, in our homes, in our workplace, in our discussion groups. 
If I agree that I've sinned, I see it. Somebody comes to me and says, Ann, you did fill in the blank. And I go, you're right. Well, I need to thank, I think, thank them for coming to me. And I, will you please forgive me? I need to also confess my sin to God. I need to thank him for his mercy in sending that friend to me and revealing that sin to me and for paying that price. And now I need to repent. Say it, somebody comes and said, you know, Ann, you, whenever we get on the phone and talk, you are really harsh with me. And I see it, I need to change. And I think part of changing is saying, you know, I'm going to really work at changing. Here's how I plan on doing it. So what do I do if somebody comes and I really just don't agree? C.J. Mahaney gives some counsel. He said, don't be put off when a friend's observations may not be 100% accurate. I've found that there's truth to be gleaned at times, even from an enemy's critique. Humility doesn't demand mathematical precision from another's input. Humility postures itself to receive God's grace from any avenue possible. Have you ever done it where somebody comes to you, and it's usually somebody close, and they say, well, you know, yesterday you seemed a little angry. It's like, I wasn't even home yesterday, so what are you talking about? Well, you know in your heart uh, the day before is what they're talking about. I like the mathematical precision because I feel like it gets me out of a lot. That's just sinful. You need to confess that too. Jerry Ragg, in a book called Exemplary Spiritual Leadership, says in his chapter on criticism, and I, I put this in there because I think it's helpful. Sometimes when somebody comes and brings sin to you, it feels like you're being criticized. And here, here are his suggestions. Learn how to listen. Don't just hear, but listen by showing genuine interest in what is being communicated. Ask question when clarity is needed. And this is where I have to be careful. He says, be careful, however, that questions are not an attempt to divert attention from the central issue being raised. For example, say something like, please help me understand or please be patient with me and tell me again what the issue is. Tell me what it is you see. Godly responses. Listen without interrupting or forming snap conclusions. And don't attack the messenger. Don't look at that person and go, well, yeah, but you're really a bigger sinner than I am, so I don't have to listen to you. I saw you get angry yesterday. You know, I saw blah, blah, blah. Don't do that. Our question must be, Lord, how can I learn from what this person is saying? And if I'm still not sure I agree with their assessment, I can again thank them for coming not easy to come to someone and bring them their sin. Even if you don't agree, you can be thankful that they cared enough to come. You may want to ask for some time to consider what they said. You can say you're sorry you hurt them. You can express that feeling. 
and this is a tricky one. You may want to ask others to help you see your sin, especially if it's an attitude or a tone. If somebody brings you something and you're not sure, ask those people close to you. They'll, they'll help you see it. And then pray about it and ask the Lord to show you if there is merit in what they are saying. Do you view people in your life as instruments in the hands of God? Because that's what they are. When, they come, when somebody comes to you, they're an instrument in the hand of our God. And praise God for that. One more side note, and then we're going to take a quick break. Jay Adams says, One must never confess his sin what he is not sure biblically is sin. Nor should he confess to sins that he does not believe he has committed merely in order to appease another who has charged him with wrongdoing. Confession must be the genuine heartfelt conviction of the repentant confessor. Don't just, sometimes it is easier, especially if it's somebody close to you, to say, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, I'm grouchy, yeah, 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 I'm angry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't do that. Ask the Lord to help you see what you need to see so you can change and be more like Christ. So we are going to take a five-minute break. So be back in five minutes. All right. So what do we do when we've been offended? Someone has sinned against me. So if someone has sinned against me and they come to me and they ask me to forgive them, what's required of me? I need to forgive them. And I want to remind you, even if they don't ask for forgiveness perfectly, they do it more like Brian Williams. Maybe they say they're sorry, or maybe they throw in an if or a maybe, or they give you an excuse. Still need to be gracious, and we need to forgive. Forgiveness defined from Ken Sandy, and I think this helps. To forgive someone means to release from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. Athemi, a Greek word that is often translated as forgive, means to let go, release, or remit. It often refers to debts that have been paid or canceled in full. Cherizome, and I have no idea that I pronounced them correctly. That's another word for forgive, means to bestow favor freely or unconditionally. This word shows that forgiveness is undeserved and cannot be earned. As these words indicate, forgiveness can be a costly activity. When you cancel a debt, it does not simply disappear. Instead, you absorb a liability someone else deserves to pay. Similarly, Forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects of another person's sin and release the person from liability to punishment. And that is precisely what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. He secured our forgiveness by taking on himself 
the full penalty of our sins. Remembering what Jesus did to purchase our forgiveness should be our greatest incentive to release others from the penalties they deserve. One of the primary passages on forgiveness that will help you forgive, that helps me forgive, is Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And that's the parable of the unmerciful or unforgiving servant. And in this passage, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And at that, Peter was thinking, that's a whole lot, because in Jewish law, they did not have to forgive seven times. So he, I believe it was three times, so he doubled it, added one, and thought, hey, seven times, is that how many times? And what does Jesus say? He says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That doesn't mean multiply 70 times 7, and at that point you get to stop forgiving, okay? What would that be? 491, right, Lori? 7 times 7 is 49, so 491. Okay, this year, I, whatever that number is, add 1. You still, was it? Is it? Oh, good. Okay, I need to go, I need, I need to go back to school. At 491, I don't get to say, mm, I've forgiven you as much as I'm required to. No. That is a picture of unlimitless forgiveness. And here's why. And here's what Jesus says. He teaches them by a parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. And that 10,000 talents, that's like an unpayable debt. There was no way this guy could pay back the king. But that slave, now I'm forgiven. I go out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. That's like a day's pay, a, a day's wage. He seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to the Lord all that had happened. Then summoning, summoning him, his Lord said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. We are called to forgive because 
think of how much we have been forgiven. That passage just takes it and strips it away. Even grievous, heinous sin against us is still nothing compared to our sin against the Lord. When we remember that, we can forgive. I'm not saying it's always easy, but when I look at what how my sin and what God, the perfect human God-man, what Jesus forgave me, how can I not forgive? And I have this written in my Bible, right by that parable. This is from R.C. Chapman. He said, if I have been injured by another, let me think to myself, how much better to be the sufferer than the wrongdoer. Another guy, Nico, says, how often have I wasted precious time by revolving in my mind all the aggravations of the injur injurious treatment to myself while I am forgetful that every day I have offended God in a much greater degree. Forgetful also that I have daily received from him such tender mercies as might make me forget all the mischief that my fellow creatures could do to me. Think of your sin against a holy God. It will help you to forgive. Luke 17, 3 tells us, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And at that, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. We can ask the Lord, Lord, I'm having a hard time forgiving. Will you increase my faith? So why do we forgive? It's a command. We have been forgiven. How can we not forgive? Remember, think of that parable of the unmerciful servant. And John MacArthur speaks of unforgiveness, the opposite of forgiving. He says, where there is an unforgiving spirit, there is sin. And where there is sin, there will be chastening. So what's my attitude to be towards those who have sinned against me? I'm supposed to be humble. Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. I'm to be gentle. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And I'm to be patient. Remember, patience is a fruit of the spirit. So that's the situation if somebody recognizes they've sinned against you and they come to you. This one's maybe a little more difficult. What do I do if somebody is sinning against me? Somebody is the offender and they're not aware of it. And I want to give a warning. We need to be careful if what you're observing you need to ask yourself, is this a sin or is it a preference issue? 
have they actually sinned or is what they're doing i just prefer they don't do that this is what i think is sin but in reality it's maybe not sin it's preference so an example of sin and i, I thought about i've really been trying to figure out my example of sin and my example of preference and i'm going to use one that i that we find in scripture and an example of sin would be drunkenness if i see someone who is getting drunk they're a sister in christ brother in christ and i want to caution because we're women if it's a brother in christ I personally believe you need to take your husband, take another, take your dad, take, maybe involve an elder, um, just kind of protection. But let's just say I'm out with Lori and she gets blotto. Poor Lori. You'll never sit there again. She's drunk. That's sin. I need to talk to her. Scripture talks about drunkenness. Now, I'm out with Lori, and she has a glass of wine. She's not drunk. She has a glass of wine. Now, here's where, here's where my analogy kind of breaks down. I don't personally have a problem with Lori having a glass of wine. There are some believers that do, that believe there should never, ever be any drinking. I believe what Scripture says is you should not get drunk, Okay. So, I wouldn't go to Lori and say, Lori, you had a glass of wine, you're in sin. But if Lori's drunk, I will go to her all day long and say, Lori, you were drunk. You need to talk about that. Okay, so, so make sure, and, and sometimes those things can be really tricky to figure out, okay, is this a preference that I'm dealing with, or is this sin that I'm seeing? And especially in our close relationships. So sometimes you may need help sorting that out. If you do, you can always come talk to me, talk to Sarah, talk to Lori, talk to your discussion leader. If you do that, flatten out the details as best you can so they have no idea who you're talking about. Um, but really ask yourself, is this, can I go to God's word and say, this is sin? Okay, did that... Did that make sense? Okay, thank you. Thank you for nodding. Um, so now I've determined, okay, this is a sin. I need to go and talk to this person. So here are some options. First of all, I can choose to overlook the sin. There are some offenses that should be overlooked. Remember, Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. That should be our attitude. Our heart should be to cover a multitude of sins. And I'm gonna, I'll explain that a little bit further. Um, remember, we're called to restore, Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, that means you who are believers, 
Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So sometimes we can overlook a sin. Um, an example would be, let's say my husband comes home and is kind of grouchy. Tom never gets grouchy. Let's just say that. Okay, we'll pretend that he's being grouchy. I can choose to overlook that because that's not his typical way. I may realize, wow, he's had a long day. I know he's not feeling well. I mean, whatever the case may be, I can choose to overlook. But if I see the pattern that day after day after day, there's an unkindness or whatever, the loving thing to do is to go to him. Sometimes sins are too serious to overlook. And Ken Sandy, again, gives some helpful suggestions for making that determination, whether or not I need, love's going to cover that multitude of sin or I need to go. So here's some questions to ask. Is it dishonoring God? If someone who professes to be a Christian is behaving in such a way that others are likely to think less of God, his church, or his word. Let's just say, I, I'm thankful this has not been a situation, but let's just say with my husband, every time we're at a restaurant, he's just grouchy and ugly to the waiter. He's dishonoring the name of the Lord, okay? I would need to say something. Is it damaging your relationship? Anything that has disrupted the peace and unity between two Christians must be talked over and made right. If there's a rift because of something, you need to talk about it. Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Is it hurting others? A direct example would be child abuse or drunk driving. Um, there's just no doubt you need to go. You need, and if it's child abuse, depending on who you are, you need to report it to the authorities. Um, indirectly, it might be that the person is setting a bad example that encourages others to behave in a s similar sinful manner. If the ladies at the church saw me continually saying disparaging things about my husband, that would be terrible. You would need to come to me because that's hurting others. I am one of the older women. If I'm setting that kind of example, you need to come to me. Is it hurting the offender? An example of that would be like drunkenness or drug abuse. Um, maybe it's just really hurting their relationship with the Lord or other people. Remember, Galatians 6.1, again, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Now, if the sin doesn't appear to be doing serious harm to your sister, it may be best simply to pray that she will see your need for change without being confronted. But on the other hand, if the sin appears to be dragging your friend under, you should try to help. And another side note, we need to be careful. We're not the fourth person of the Trinity. 
And again, if you need to seek counsel about whether or not you should go, flatten out the details, you give enough information to the person you're asking for help from to help you determine what you should do. But try not to give names or enough information that they'd know. And another thing that helps consider whether or not you should go, is this a pattern or is it a one-time thing? And it also helps you to think, if, if you were the one doing it, would you want someone to point it out to you? Is it loving not to go to them? And if you have something to gain in going, like your life's going to be easier, happier, you really need to check your heart. You need to really check your motives. Another thing, check your timing, especially within family relationships. If you know that the you know, person doesn't think very well late at night or early in the morning, don't go then. Go at the time that's convenient for them. You may be a morning person, but they think better at night. Take a nap and go at night. And this is another piece of advice that my husband has given, me, given and given to me, is don't have a 30-minute conversation in five minutes of time. In other words, if you know that what you need to say is going to take some time, don't do it when you have, you know, five, five minutes to run it through. That's disastrous. So from God's word about going, remember Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. These things are a faithful friend goes. He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Proverbs 31, 26, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And Matthew 7, 12 says, in everything therefore treat people the same way you want them to treat you for this is the law and the prophets. So in other words, if you're thinking, you know, if I were doing that, I would want somebody to come and tell me you need to go. And we want to have more concern for our fellow believer than we do for ourselves. Now, we've gotten to the point now where you determine, okay, I really need to go. I need to say something. Remember Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your own brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Determine if you've contributed to the problem. If it's a situation where you got, say, in an argument or a disagreement, determine, did you do something to contribute to the problem? You may need to go and seek forgiveness first and wait to say something. 
And just remember the counsel of James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Before you talk to the person, if they have sinned directly against you, forgive them in prayer to the Lord before you go. That helps you to be ready to grant forgiveness. You don't go and say, okay, you've sinned against me. I've already forgiven you, but I want to tell you. Don't do that. But do that before the Lord so that if they do see their sin and seek your forgiveness, you're ready to grant forgiveness. So when we determine we need to say something, we need to go graciously, tentatively. Ken Sandy says again, unless you have clear first-hand knowledge that a wrong has been done, give the other person the benefit of the doubt and be open to the possibility that you have not assessed the situation correctly. And your attitude needs to be humble, gentle, and patient. And if they agree with my assessment and they seek my forgiveness, you need to grant them forgiveness. You need to say, yes, I forgive you. You need to not dwell on the incident, and you need to not bring that incident up again unless admonishment is needed, unless it's a pattern. And then we don't gossip about it, and we don't let the incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. So let's say I'm in a situation where I, I determined it's sin, I go, they don't agree. That is where you may need to go through what would be called church discipline. And that, if you look at the church's biblical, biblical conviction number six, the passage in Matthew 18, it walks through how you go. So now I've gone by myself. Now I may need to take another to go. You don't automatically go. You may need to go again, give them time to think. But if you look at the biblical conviction number six, that will help you. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But if you're in that situation, you may need to bump it up a notch. And, and go um, with someone else. So what do I do if I'm dealing with someone who's unrepentant? They just don't see it. So they've been sinning against me, and I've gone, I've given that gentle answer, I've been kind, I've been gracious, and they're still sinning against me. Does that mean now I have my past to let them have it and sin boldly? Absolutely not. Here's what we need to do. Control my tongue. Continue to say only what is helpful and beneficial to others. I need to seek counsel and support and encouragement from spiritually mature advisors. I need to keep doing what's right no matter what others do to me. And that's where the book of 1 Peter comes in. I need to recognize my limits by resisting the temptation to take revenge and by remembering that being successful in God's eyes depends on faithfulness, not results. And I need to continue to love my enemies by striving to discern and address their needs. In Philippians 
4, which we looked at at the very beginning with Yudia and Syntyche, Paul gives some instructions that help. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious or nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And on your handout is the mini course in peacemaking. I have that written in my Bible at Philippians 4. I want to add one last part that, that I think is a little, another maybe difficult part with peacemaking is restoration. So what we looked at with the sin was reconciliation. But then there's restoration. And this came, again, from peacemakers. Although reconciliation can sometimes take place with little or no special effort, in most cases, you will need to remember the saying, if you are coasting, you must be going downhill. In other words, unless a deliberate effort is made to restore and strengthen a relationship, it will generally deteriorate. This is especially true when you are recovering from intense and prolonged conflict. Moreover, unless you take definite steps to demonstrate your forgiveness, the other person may doubt your sincerity and withdraw from you. Peacemaking Women uses this analogy. True forgiveness sets us free to work toward restoration of the relationship. As is often the case, we may not feel like close friends at the end of the peacemaking process, even though we have reached a point of reconciliation. This is because the need for restoration still exists. To better understand this concept, it's helpful to make the distinction between reconciliation and restoration. Think of the analogy of a broken bone. If a leg is broken, the doctor sets the bone and the gap is healed. That's reconciliation. This is what happens when someone confesses to us and we forgive. In the same way that a freshly set bone is not ready to bear weight, a broken relationship, newly reconciled, often needs time and help to be fully restored. A broken bone might need a cast or physical therapy for complete restoration. The same thing happens to a relationship following reconciliation. It often takes prayer, time, and focused effort to build trust back into a formally broken relationship. A good rule of thumb, the greater the fracture, the longer the recovery time. Just as a healed bone that never bears weight will never grow stronger, relationships that are avoided or neglected will never grow stronger. God's grace and mercy enable us to strengthen reconciled relationships. We may send cards or emails, take extra time to share a gift that truly communicates love, 
or any other countless acts of kindness that communicate our commitment to the relationship. Reconciliation is an event, but restoration is a process that slowly restores the relationship. So we've come to the end of this, and I don't know who was observant, but we didn't look at the disciplines. I didn't forget. So if you'll flip over your notebooks, and I think that's maybe something, there's a couple of you I think that are brand new, and that's something that I believe we do every time we meet. So let's go through our Wellspring purpose. It's to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And the first discipline is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. Remember, ladies, our first need my first need, your first need, is to be reconciled to God. We must continue to pursue our relationship with God through his word, and we must remember the gospel and what Christ did for us by coming from heaven to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sin, rising from the dead, and sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for me. Reconciliation is who our God is. He is a peacemaking God. He made peace with sinners by taking our sin. The home. Well, I think most of us would agree that probably 90 to 95 to 99% of the conflict that we have occurs in our homes. So she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. So as peacemakers, we need to be peacemakers in our homes. That's where so much conflict can happen. We need to be peacemakers. We need to make it our goal to live at peace with all men as far as it depends on us. And in ministry, the third discipline with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others towards God and the gospel. Now, because of what Christ has done for me, my heart, because I'm a believer in my home and then being involved in ministry, now I can minister to those in my household and those in the church by, here's what we need to do seek forgiveness when I've sinned. I need to forgive others when they sin against me. I can go when I need to go and say those hard things. And I need to receive graciously when I hear those hard things. And that may happen within my home. I now have grown kids. It can happen from them. My husband, if you have roommates. I mean, there's it can, it can be from non-believing co-workers that can say things. We need, to, we need to hear it. We need to receive it. We need to confess our sin. We need to be peacemakers. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. 
Lord, you are a God of peace. You have given us grace and peace. What a gift from you. Lord, I do pray that you will help us to be peacemakers in our homes, in our workplaces, with family and friends, Lord, and within our church. I pray, Lord, that Grace Bible Church will be known as a church of people that make peace, that love each other, and, and just care for one another. Lord, you are a good God. Thank you for sending Jesus. Lord, thank you for your spirit who lives inside of us and helps conform us to the image of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.